Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Okay, so once again, I'm with, I'm in Switzerland this time with Mike from Switzerland. Hello again. And yep, decided just to take a couple of hours out of our busy day up in the mountains here and do another podcast, which stems from a discussion we were having earlier about a... HR and the direction HR is taking, particularly in, in major companies in the US and increasingly the UK. And as you all know, HR is now my speci- specialist subject, which I'm studying in my final term for my MBA. And so this is something that interests me, and this is a topic I discuss with my professors. And one of the big changes I think we've seen, we've seen a lot of big changes in HR, It's not only have they adopted the nonsense that is coming out of the social sciences departments in American academia, but also, well, the speed they're adopting it. I mean, it used to be maybe there was a year or two gap, but now it seems to be adopted almost immediately. The first silly idea that gets mentioned in the corridors of uh, American universities, within a week, it seems to be an HR policy in a major company. But it's also probably more disturbing is the lack of separation between people's public life and their work life, sorry, their, yeah, their private life or their life outside work and their professional work within the company. Well, it wasn't that long ago when, um, say, the CEO of a big company would say something in a private capacity, it would get the Ad or the mirror excited and the company would simply issue a statement saying uh, that this was said in a private capacity and does not ref- reflect the viewpoint of the company and that was it they would be quoted by a journalist in the paper and that would be that would be basically the end of the story provided it wasn't so incredibly egregious uh, as to pass all bounds and that w- and that was the end of it but now People are being held up. Random, random people in random roles in companies are being hauled over the coals for things said in private or on Twitter. And I think this is a, this is a massive paradigm shift. Um, it is. And what is, where it stems from, it's, it's because they're no longer looking for people to come and do a job necessarily and they admit this in fact they boast about it this is talked about all the time in HR circles they're now looking for people who this is how they put it share the company values now from what I can tell company values are a set of probably half a dozen or ten adjectives that all companies use which don't so much reflect who they are or what they believe in, but what they, or even so much what they want to believe in or how they want to conduct themselves. It's how they want to be seen to conduct themselves. So they claim that they need people with these values or these behavioral traits or these opinions in order to fit in the company. 
And if that because if they don't fit in that company culture, then they won't be able to work very well. This is kind of the justification behind it. But what they've done, they've ended up, they're more like churches or religious movements now than companies. And they, but they openly, they, they don't put it like this, but they openly brag that this, is, this isn't to do with your competence. The, this person might have the right skills, but if he doesn't share our values, we don't want them. It's always totalitarian. In fact, it is very totalitarian. Um, and it's really going beyond the bounds of the purpose of what a company is for. I mean, it's to create value for its customers and its owners and its employees in whatever mix. I mean, it used to be that, that the values of the company reflected some sort of mix of who you're creating value for. Are you just creating value for the shareholders? If you're a back in the 90s, the big ones were, were asset strippers, thing, things like that. Are you creating value for, for, your, for your customers, uh, which sort of used to be the general, the general principle? Um, now, it's, it's possibly that a lot of these big companies just make so much money, they've got so much sort of corporate leisure time that they can worry about these, these things really a long way down the scale that have no bearing on what they're actually producing. If, you're, if your company is producing widgets and people want to buy your widgets, what does it matter whether you share, whether the employees on the production line or in the offices share these wishy-washy values, which are pretty uniform amongst all these big companies. Um, it's, as, you, as you say, it's very, it's very re religious. You can understand a church. You want people who, who share the values of the church. Exactly. As, as, as but, but employees I think, I and customers. I think there's, there's a reason why this has happened. This has is, this is coincided with the decline of organized religion in the countries where we're seeing it. And as I'm fond of saying on the blog, Organised religion disappeared, but the desire to be part of an organised religion, which is something innate to humans, I think, hasn't gone away. So to fill that vacuum, you now have sort of um, evangelicals who are desperate to save the world and save people's souls. And they think that so these companies have now taken on this societal role that churches used to in maintaining a moral order. The politicians think that they're maintaining moral order as well. Well, certainly Theresa May's lot, well, her specifically. Exactly. Well, they're all from, they're all the same people. I mean, if, if you're not going to go into politics and harangue people there, you'll go into HR and you'll harangue them from there. So it's the same. They're all the same. They're, they're all the same middle class, upper middle class, university educated, usually in the social scientists. They're the same. They're the same profile of people. So it's not surprising that we're seeing the same desires come out of depending regardless of which uh, career path they choose but i think they are on a a moral cleansing mission that they think that society should could be better and it would be better if only everybody's forced to abide by these these moral rules and i think that's what we're seeing companies now are no longer able to say uh we make widgets oh no they now have to be part of some societal drive to, um, to, to to advance us towards some kind of multicultural SJW utopia. And, and which is interesting because that's the complete opposite of what the left used to. The left used to say that company, companies and governments are too close together, they're too pally, we can't trust big companies 
because they're inherently untrustworthy because they're only interested in returning to their shareholders and not for the greater good of society. That seems to have very rapidly switched to companies must be fully involved in what is ultimately a political campaign to change society for the better, which is, which is a startling turnaround from where we were 20 years ago. And there's the implied threat of if you don't do this voluntarily, we will force you to do it by legislation. Yeah, of course. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, they have to be on board with it. That's where all this uh, compliance, the compliance requirements that you have to have a certain number of women, you can't be mean to your LGBT staff, you have to have policies in places saying that you'll do everything you can to combat child slavery and piracy. This is all, it's generated by the people who took the government path out of university and it's warmly embraced by those people in corporations who took the private sector route because it gives them something to do. And and certainly uh, in, in corporations where the HR department is extremely powerful, you could have some 23-year-old media studies graduate who had been imbibed, who had imbibed strongly of the, uh, uh, of the current SJW craziness at university, who is parachuted into a role where this person has effectively life or death decisions over other people in the company. And if a lot of people like a little whiff of power and like to use it. And I think we're in a, we're in a situation where middle-ranking HR drones un wield unbelievable power. And I have an, a, a second-hand anecdote on this point, and I will name and shame the company. Um, so I was talking to someone about the time of, of graduating. Um, he'd been on the uh, British Aerospace Graduate Programme. So this is going back a while. Um, major arms manufacturer, he'd spotted the usual corporate nonsense and incompetence and they ended up apparently shipping a tornado at great expense uh, halfway across the country because uh, HR, health and safety meant that you couldn't hold up a, uh, a piece of white card to see if a, uh, if a laser was running. And it's the same sort of laser that, that is in a sort of common household laser pointer. So it really right. wasn't eye unsafe unless you stared right into it. Um, so they weren't allowed to do this, so they shipped this tornado over somewhere, and it turned out that the shutter was closed, oh. and it was shipped back. But anyway, um, what happened to this guy was HR somehow, some, well, some low-level HR drone found out that he was a small-ball target shooter and had a firearm certificate. And as soon as this, this lady, who worked for a major arms manufacturer, manufacturing artillery and, and bombs, bombs and guns falling and, on Yemen, yeah. and tanks and things like that, uh, got a bit of a sad on about the fact that he had a firearm certificate. Now also remember that British Aerospace, particularly Royal Ordnance, has its own shooting club inside. And um, yeah, she harassed him out of the company. When was this? Oh, this would have been... It's a while ago. This was early 2000s, apparently, if it's true. Because it, it wasn't quite as crazy back then. Um, but it still existed, that's the thing. If, yeah. If, if, if an HR drone got on your case about something that was perceived as un-PC, you could still be handed out. I mean, nobody was going to be handed out for, for the odd off-collar joke, and Twitter didn't exist. So well, I, think, I think it's starting in certain companies. I mean, it, to be fair to the oil companies I worked for, I didn't see any of this. Um, I saw all the corporate nonsense at the top. You know, you open the corporate website and it's all on about the LGBTI and International Women's Day and uh, whatever nonsense they've put up. But I think that's just PR. 
But I think it depends on industry. Tech seems to be particularly bad for it. Um, but the problem is, is this is being, it starts in tech probably because it's all in Silicon Valley and it's very liberal around there and people... Plus they're recruiting a lot straight from university. Yeah, they're recruiting straight from university, but they're always recruiting from these... Uh, they're also, yeah, recruiting from the top universities where this stuff tends to prevail. And from there, unfortunately, these companies seem to be held up by HR professionals as being sort of models to follow. And where, frankly, I mean, I'm not that bothered that likes of Google are firing people for wrong think on the grounds that, look, you know what they're like. Everyone knows now what Google's like. After the James Damore thing, they don't have a leg to stand on. It's basically, you're joining a church, and if you step outside the doctrine, you'll get run out of town. And that's where we are. So you may as well just accept that. But what's going to happen is this starts to spread to other companies which don't have the luxury. Because frankly, I mean, I'm not sure what Google does. It's always been talked about as brilliant. They seem to have a good search algorithm. I don't know what anything else they've produced. I, I don't know. I mean, everyone talks about Google as if they're this amazing company. And oh, they're the amazing employee and they have bean bags and you can sleep in the office and this kind of stuff. And they have, you know, they have a soft play area. It's all designed to, uh, to maximise the productivity of a certain demographic group. It's, it's quite cleverly designed like that. It is, but what are they doing? What are they, just, just to sort of digress a bit. What, Google seem to make their money off the ads from their search engine because their search engine algorithm is better than anybody else's. Yes. What else have they produced that is making them money? They are an advertising company masquerading as a search engine. The, yeah. ser the, ser the search engine feeds the ad revenue. They exactly. are probably the world's most successful advertising company yes, ever. Yes, exactly. But that all stems from their algorithm for the searches. Yes. YouTube they bought, and they probably make money off the YouTube adverts, but that's nothing clever. There was nothing innovative about buying someone else's. Whoever came up with YouTube was clever. Yeah. Well, the thing is that the early days of YouTube to get ad revenue, you had to be a, a sort of certified partner. Well, and That's right. I had the opportunity yeah, yeah. to discuss this with uh, Lindy Beige, who was an early adopter. Um, and he, I think he recounted it in a video somewhere, but we discussed it when he was, uh, when I was face to face with him. And he, um, he said it was all a big deal back in the day of, um, of getting on the certified partner program and, and, and being allowed into the world of of, of ads, but the early days of YouTube, I think now it doesn't make an awful lot of money, but it was something that Google were not wanting to be cut out of. And then now, well, during, during the glory days of, of ad revenue, uh, literally anybody who'd had more than a few videos up and a few thousand views could sign up for ad revenue. And the, the, re the revenues per view back then were, were really good. Yeah, because it was a lot more concentrated. Now there's, there's, there's a lot. Um... Well, the, 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 there's less ads bought. Um, yeah. It was April two years ago. I'm, so not, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure these online ads generate sales returns. That'd be interesting to look at because I think, I think they're, they're, they rely a lot on the data from the tech companies of how many views this has got. And Facebook every six months is, told to go and change its algorithm because you know they they've they've exaggerated the numbers of views and clicks 
And mm-hmm. and as a couple of bloggers have pointed out, these errors always run in one direction. Oh yeah, it's always they always say, oh, "Sorry, when you, you've got a thousand views, but we told you you had ten million. It's never the other way around. It's never, hey, good news, you got far more clicks than we thought you would. No, it's never like that. So, but the thing is with Google, they're they're held up now. Certainly, I don't know about probably on most MBA courses because my MBA takes material from other MBA courses, and we we get shown talks from you know, that are shared by Harvard Business School and, you know, all these TED Talks. And they keep going on about Google and big tech and this kind of thing. And as if they've kind of built up this 50-year empire of, like, serious achievements. And they're always talking about, oh, Google, they got the Google car and Google it and Google that. And they're working on this AI and they got the best people. Yeah, are we going to see a product at some point? Because I don't know that the phone. I mean, do, do, they, do they? Is that anything to do with them? The, like the, the like the Android. Do they have? I don't know who who, who uh, makes Android them. is 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 Google. Well, the operating, the operating system. system. Okay, well that's quite clever. So we'll give them that. Okay, because I mean, obviously they're, they're not they're not completely dumb. I'm not dismissing everything, but uh, they're, they're made out that they're some kind of you know that they're they're like the the new Unilever or something. Like, hang on, they're, they're a lot uh, of what they do seems to be venture capital, effectively in-house venture capital. Where they'll buy thing, they'll buy things, they'll buy startups, um, they because might they have an might, interesting, it might go it somewhere. might go somewhere exactly, and they don't want, and, and I think they're worried about something going somewhere and it not being theirs, so they'll they'll buy up all sorts of yes. things. I mean, Microsoft did that with uh, with Skype and post Microsoft buyouts. It's terrible, Skype. yeah, it's and terrible. everyone uses WhatsApp now anyway. Yeah, yeah. And how does WhatsApp make any money? Well, I don't think it does. I don't. That's the thing. I don't. Th- I don't think they care. The people who start these things don't care. They just want to be able to sell it, and then ultimately, some idiot comes and buys it. Yeah, ultimately, either float it on the on the stock market and have an IPO and get wildly wealthy, like or just travel around the world saying that hey, I'm the guy who founded WhatsApp. You know, you can do that. But it's. Uh, but I think with, with Google is, look, they have some good products, but they're not that new. The, the, the search engine's been around a long time. Gmail. Was an improvement on Hotmail, but you know anyone could, uh, an email. That's not that's hardly cutting edge. An email service, YouTube was good, but they bought that. Google Earth is really good, and Google Maps is really good. Yeah, but that isn't exactly again. That isn't something. It wasn't a new idea. Was it a new idea? I mean, it's good. It's it's a good it's a good it's a good thing. But there's two things about Google that I think we should be careful of if we're using them as a template for everyone else. It's a very very specific business model. Indeed. You can't extrapolate that across an entire economy and say these are the guys we should follow. Yeah, yeah. Your, your your widget factory. You should be run along the, the lines of a tech behemoth that actually makes its money through selling advertising. Exactly, it's, and and they and they t- and what happens? We get shown videos of like the head of Google recruitment and this you know doe-eyed young reporter who's very nice looking is going oh how come it's so amazing to work in your company and they're like well we make sure everyone shares our values and it's this seven step or seven week recruitment process and we put them all in a, a vat of bubble bath and we see how they behave and we do this and we and you know and we, it's all very lovey-dovey and a happy family i'm thinking you're recruiting firstly you're recruit you have the money and the name to recruit the absolute cream of the crop you can really name your, you can say, right, I want this person, they'll come and work for you. Um, and also, you're recruiting a very, very, very specific type of person to do a very sort of unusual job in many ways and work in a very unusual environment. This, can't, this cannot be used as a model for HR across an entire economy. A small, medium-sized company 
that deals in cement cannot be running this so, so what we're being shown is this kind of sort of very unusual and quite specific and very narrow sort of HR methodology for recruitment and retention and company culture and values and this kind of thing. Now, how much of your course has been uh, show, showing an example like this and saying this is this should be universal and how well, much is actually acknowledged that this is industry specific or company specific? Unfortunately, these it's Google and the big tech which is held up as the examples of this is the way HR is going, this is the way companies are going in future, this is how the future belongs. Now, I'm, what I like to do is be, my listeners will never believe this, but I like to be quite contrarian and dig in and start pushing back a bit and saying things like, well, hang on a minute, we, look, that might work for Google. But the other thing, just to digress a tiny bit, because this is the point I wanted to make before, the two things wrong with Google. The second one is that, an antitrust suit could bust this up in any minute now. Oh, yeah. I mean, somebody is at some point going to come along and go, you need to flog off YouTube, the Mail, the Google Earth, and the search engine, all they need to be separate, and the Android. Well, Google Google donate enough politically that that's less likely to come across. We're not going to see the Microsoft antitrust suit filed by those great political yeah. donors, IBM and Sun and whatnot but back in the 90s. the EU's already gone for them, and they've hit them with a $4 billion, and that will keep, the EU will see them as a cash cow to be milked. Like the US government sees Swiss banks. Exactly. And, and the EU got Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft was able to buy off the US government to a point, but they couldn't do that with the EU. So at some point, I think it's likely that these uh, they'll be done for anti-competitive practices and they'll be bust up. Now, I'm not necessarily agreeing that this is what should be done, but this is generally how things happen. So it's a good chance a politician will make their name for themselves, breaking up the big tech monopolies. And suddenly all this goes out the window because suddenly they'll find that the bit this business model, this recruitment model is, is completely different. So I don't think this is a good idea to follow, to sort of use them as a template. But getting back to what we've gone. Oh, sorry, I was, I was gonna say that this sort of template model, it's amazing how many of them are um, company specific, business unit specific. Just to go back to uh, previous discussions on group H, uh, the way things were done in Belgium was the way things were, and everyone else had to jump to the, jump to the same tune, even if in the other business units in the other com- com- uh, countries, uh, it was totally inappropriate for the local clientele, the local culture, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, and I, I think, but I think in Google they they've got they've got a, a, a really an international culture. Um, they recruit people with these the same outlook and viewpoint no matter where they are, because they're going for the same. The thing is, they're like oil companies. You can recruit, and the top um, investment banks, you can recruit the absolute cream of the crop. And they will quite often have very similar characteristics anyway. But they're not much use as a template, because these companies get 10,000 applications for every job, so they can afford to turn people away. But as you start going down through the economy, down through the supply chains, you're going to have to start actively trying to recruit people and attract them to you and bring them to you. You can't just say, right, we're going to hold this, you know, this, this team building session in a, in, a, in, a, in a ball pit and see, you know, how childish everybody is. And then we can recruit the most childish out of all them. That, you can't do that if you're a, you know, a serious company that people haven't really heard of. And the thing with a lot of this uh, 
where you might start finding the economy dividing in terms of HR and this moral crusade stuff is that B2C businesses, so businesses to customers, which have a customer facing, a public facing bra, um, arm like retail or a, uh, a household name are going to have to adopt this. But then the B2B, the business to business um, organisations might not have to. The supplier of ball bearings to Mercedes, for example, they probably no one's going to know who they are. Do these ball bearings share our corporate uh, vision? Uh, exactly. So you can customers will get very upset. Well, they're not even customers; they're just activists. They'll get very upset about household names, and um, which is just massive companies and ones where you see their logo around. So that's uh, consumer products and anything like you know, oil companies where you drive along the, the highway and you see their, their logo. These make easy targets. There are companies which fall all down the supply chain that can be just as big and just as powerful. No one will have ever heard of them. Somebody, a friend of mine, worked for a company. Apparently, when Renault built, Renault don't actually build cars. Something I might. This isn't exactly right because I'm probably misquoting, <clears throat> but apparently Renault don't really build cars. Some other cars sort of build them, and Renault sort of Renault do the design. They come up with all the sort of the design. This is how we want it to look, and this is the engine and that kind of thing. But it actually gets farmed out to a company that manufactures them, and this company's got a name, and it's absolutely enormous, and I'd never heard of them. Is it the one that makes car parts for practically every That's right. manufacturer in they Europe? Do, they do everything. And, um, and yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, Yes, I... Uh, no one's ever heard of them, and they're no. huge. And your car is full of them. Your it's car full is absolutely parts full of them. So now they might eventually come under this because they've probably got enough money to do this. But if you keep going down the supply chain, you'll get two or three rungs down before, really, the companies, their margins are too slim to, being, to be a church. They need to stay being a business rather than a church. They need people coming in where they really don't care what their private thoughts are or anything. And also, they're never going to be the targets of the SJW mob, simply because no one's ever heard of them. And well, you're not going to get people excited about, oh, this is, you know, XYZ car parts company. Let's boycott them. They'll be like, who the hell are they? You, 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 you want to really shake down the, the companies that you can only embarrass a company that has a, a household name to begin with. Mm. So what I think is going to happen is at a certain point, you're going to get a real diverging in the economy between how companies are run in terms of managing their PR, particularly HR, particularly also the number, and this is what my dissertation might be on, the number of women that are employed in these household name companies who are under pressure to get to that 50% mark. Whereas XYZ, third tier car park, you know, the people who make the, the, the brake pad linings, they're, they're under no such pressure. And I think you're going to see a divergence and it's going to be quite interesting because, and this is what I'm trying to bring up in my MBA classes, that we're being taught constantly about the big players, the Google and Facebook and, you know, these massive players. I think they're not the big employers across the economy. Most people in the room we're in won't be walking straight into a job with ease. We'll be working for some middle ranking company nobody's ever heard of. Um, now... When you were growing up, had you heard of the company you work for now? Didn't exist. 
exactly. When I was growing up, actually, I'm not a good example. Because when I grew up, I grew up beside a Texaco refinery, and all I wanted to do is work on that Texaco refinery. I never worked for Texaco or Chevron, but I did work for a couple of other oil companies. So actually, yes, I did know Total growing up. But the companies I worked for before that, I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of the scaffolding company I worked for or the engineering company I worked for. So you end up working for companies that really provide the opportunity. And the, the name above the door doesn't really make a great deal of difference. Yet we're kind of taught that these big household names, by virtue of them being massive and famous, are, the, are providing the template to follow. And I don't agree with that. Mm, I think there's a, there's a lot in that. But I think a lot of the opinion formers are people who either work for these big companies or they work for, for newspapers or in government. They've sort of gone on the, that standard career track from university. And they are just utterly blissfully unaware of... It's, it's like the, 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 the largest, collectively, the largest part of the economy is hiding in plain sight and people are just entirely unaware of it. And I suspect if you did a survey of people uh, saying, OK, right, these big, the big name companies, what proportion of the workforce do you think work for them? They'd overestimate it by miles. Actually, I heard, I heard the, the, the somebody, somebody put a figure out on Switzerland that something like 40% of people are employed by sort of 3% of the biggest companies. And I didn't believe that. I thought that... I wasn't sure. That was certainly the complete opposite to what it is in most countries. That would surprise me because Switzerland has, like Germany, it has a middle stunt. Middle yeah. stunt. It's it's um, it's dominated by SMEs, often family owned or previously family owned. Uh, Maybe Germ they were referring to Geneva. Because Geneva's full of all the giant. You know, you got the UN. I can believe it for Geneva. Maybe it was a Geneva thing. I can't believe it's Switzerland wide. Because no, I was surprised. And, and this is the one I'm trying to say to people on my MBA course and say to the professors is that, you know, yeah, OK, it'd be nice if we could all get jobs at Louis Vuitton and Nestle and Google and all these massive companies. But chance are most of us won't. We'll be down at the lower levels. And one of the things I, I came up with in one of my lectures recently is, look, I don't need to know how Google do their HR. I need to know how to properly advise the management of a medium-sized company how to properly recruit and set up their HR processes and make sure that their HR strategy matches their overall business strategy. Learning about Google isn't going to help with that. Yeah, totally different pond that, that, they're, that, they're, that they're fishing in. So I think what's going to happen is you're going to find that yeah, the, the big companies are going to be end up on a completely different sort of strata of the economy in a completely different way of running. And I think, frankly, we should just leave them to it. What needs to happen is that people, the new people coming through, the new workers, are told well in advance, up front, these are the two strata you can swim in. You can either go... You can either go and work for Google or you can work for the government. It doesn't make any difference. You'll still be joining a big church. And in fact, it's probably one's just a denomination of the other. Or you can work for a business. And if you're bright, ambitious, and you have certain characteristics, you will either go into you know this part of the economy or you'll join the church. And, and I think that's what people need to be getting more advice on. 
Mm. And I think, I mean, it's a totally different way to present yourself because there are certain things that will flag up positively in HR for a Google, for, the, for, for a church, which will, which will um, flag up very, very negatively in an SME. Exactly, and vice versa. Yeah, uh, political activism, irris- well, irrespective of, uh, of the denomination of political activism. But for a, for a small company, that's a, uh-oh, we've potentially got an issue with social cohesion. If this person is going to start uh, start haranguing people politically, particularly if their if their partic- if their political affiliation is on a certain end of the spectrum, uh, whereas in Google that would be seen as a plus, and they, they can go in and they can Why harangue. Did you not Republican. Well, uh, <laughs> was not that end of the spectrum I was referring to, but um, if someone if someone had a history of that was a history of SJW activism on their on their CV and were wearing it on their sleeve like that. That would probably be flagged up as a massive positive by Google HR. Yeah. Um, an, SM, an SME that's not some like vegan cafe or something is going is is going to run a mile for that from that because that is that is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah. Whereas in Google, is a way for HR to reinforce the the church aspect, the, the 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 totalitarian nature of you must share our views. Here's this person who is spouting our views. They might be being obnoxious about it, but that's your problem because you you're some, not on board enough. Something one of the uh, yeah, I'm not sure if Google would actually go for out and out activism because they really want conformity. An activist tend it'd be interesting actually. I think what they prefer is people to no they. You, you don't because a church doesn't want an activist coming in. What they want is a true believer, which isn't quite the same thing. They don't want a revolutionary; they want a true believer. Mm. So that's what they test for. They test for true believers who mm. are going to be who are going to be compliant true believers. Mm. Um, and but what's interesting is one of the bloggers pointed out about a year ago that activism now appears on people's LinkedIn profiles. It's actually because it's it's funded. So what happens? You have these professionals in the US now, and. Uh, I don't want to invoke the anti-Semitic dog whistle by Soros. I think probably his influence does get... Uh, I, I'm sure there's loads of money poured into this, some of which comes from Soros, probably. But the whole thing's an industry. I mean, a lot of it's government-funded, from what I can tell. Um, you have these professionals who, one minute they're organising for, I don't know, uh, Occupy, and then they're moving on to uh, something like get the Nazis out of Charlottesville, then they're at Black Lives Matter, then they're at some pipeline protest, and they're just basically going around one protest after another. And this appears on their CVs. This gets put in LinkedIn, that they participated and organised this protest, then that, then that. So it's obviously an industry now. I think there's enough, there's enough money, public and donated money, to fund a lot of these organisations that people can make their, make their careers yeah. in them. Um, and, and, the, and also, there's, yeah, there's a big crossover between the government-funded kind of uh, arts events and charities and political activism. There's a huge crossover between that, which is why you see the same people turn up and all of them. You, you, go to these, you go to these protests, most of them will be working for some sort of NGO or some sort of, they'll have to be on some sort of arts grant or something like that. Um, a lot of them will also be funded by their parents. So even though they're not being paid directly to turn up at these uh, protests, the fact that they've got room and board paid for means that they don't have, you know, they can afford to go. Um, 
I think what you see in Google though, it's more a sort of they're very. They 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 provide them with the Bible and say this is what you must believe in, and then they people have to demonstrate that this is the the doctrine they're signing up to, and they're on board. And I think they're very good at weeding out the fakers. I think they're good at it. I mean, I think it works well. I think this is why when James Damore was treated literally like a heretic, because they're like, how the hell did he get through the net? You know, oh, bloody, and they all started going back and, and, and asking themselves how he slipped through the net, you know, and they, they've probably gone around their whole HR policy and said, right, you know, we might need to might need to get out the um, the hot tongs uh, to make sure, you know, that this doesn't happen again. And I think that's what they're good at. But they're but this gets talked about very positively in HR circles. They start talking about if you've got people of the same values. It means that um, people work more harmoniously together, which is probably true because that's that's what the Mormons do. The Mormons are phenomenally successful. I mean, they built Salt Lake City out of a desert because they were all pulling in the same direction. They all believed the same stuff. But the problem is that is not a model for the rest of the economy because there's going to be companies that firstly can't afford to set up their own church. And Google are just, they have the luxury of being able to do it. It's like, mm. you know, it's, it's like if I was going to set up my own cult, I wouldn't get the same numbers of people as sort of the people trying to join the Catholic Church, for example. Mm. It's, um, you, so, but I think at the, the yeah, the, at the SME level, they're going to have to work hard identifying the people who don't fit in the big company churches and appeal to them and they don't seem to be <clears throat> I don't think there's any branch of HR that's even attempting that because they're all thinking all the HR people are going oh we, we, we need to do something similar to Google what I think they should be doing is let Google take the true believers let and and all these big companies let them take the true believers. let them hoover up all the all the ones that tick the boxes but down at the, <clears throat> the lower levels you need to really start thinking about who do we recruit? Who do we go after? So you want to be going around the second tier universities looking for the people with two ones rather than going to Harvard, MIT, Oxford, Cambridge, getting the people with firsts. Mm. I mean, in, my, in my industry, we struggle to recruit at all. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's, also, it's a slightly closed shop. It's very, very specific skills and abilities that we need from people. And all the people that are half good are in post somewhere uh, already and have to be talked out of it. The, the trick for the recruitment consultants is to identify those who are good but disgruntled with, uh, with their current em employer. And then you've got, you've got the big firm, small firm. I mean, personally, I, I've had it up to here with corporate and I only had a relatively small time in a, in a proper corporate environment. Um, I'm a self-starter and I, uh, I, I value autonomy highly. Some people value autonomy to not do enough work. Cause but interestingly, they say this is what all the millennials want, which is why Google apparently, I mean, this is just from the interviews, I don't know if it's true, but they say that at Google, you know, everyone's given massive autonomy and it's all very flat organization and not much bureaucracy and not many layers of management. And I can believe that, but again, they are... Um, but you've got to weed out those who are abusing it. At an early stage. Well, they don't. They don't recruit people who will abuse because they can take the cream of the crop. The people they're coming in aren't lazy. 
I mean, the people they can recruit are going to be really smart, hardworking, because they can, because they they get a million applicants. They can do that. Um, but it's what what I what. What I prefer, what you never hear, and I like to I like to tease all the way through my MBA. I've been doing this when people have been talking about you know successful companies and the ones you should look up to. I always put my paw in the air and say, why aren't we looking at Exxon Mobil? Because of oh, evil oil company, they can't do that. I've said, look, they they've been around for well since Standard Oil will be probably a hundred years now, maybe a bit more. Um, phenomenally successful. You look at you look a list of you put up a load of photos of what they've done, what they've built, what they've got done. It's absolutely incredible. There's loads of companies out there, these massive engineering companies like Bechtel and people. Um, the old Foster Wheeler doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, because they've been bought out. But all these all these these giant companies, even even the likes of Boeing, I suppose, you know, I mean they're not held up as, you know, companies that, you know, these guys have been around a hundred years and this is what they've done. They're almost an embarrassment. It's like Oh, well, well, they're old fashioned. Well, I don't know, longevity has, and I had a big argument with my strategy professor about this. I said, look, longevity has something going for itself all by itself, you know. And how many companies have, have been around 100 years? Or can trace, can trace their lineage back 100 years um, these days? Well, not many. No. Not many. So that's what I say, if you've got a company that has got years of like, you know, serious successful tangible results and things that you can actually see and think wow they did this they were pioneers in that the, the prevailing orthodoxy seems we can't learn anything from them because that's all in the past let's look to these tech companies that popped up five minutes ago and have basically survived because they've got um the regulations haven't really got to grips with big tech yet so they haven't been broken up. And also they're still in an area which is very volatile. I mean, like Twitter and Facebook, nobody knows how much longer this uh, social media phenomenon is going to last. It's very new. Well, look at, look at things that were m massively successful a few years ago and have disappeared. Um, for instance, in the UK, there was Friends Reunited. <laughs> dot co dot UK, yeah, but then we which jumped was, over to Facebook. Yeah, and then everybody jumped over to Facebook because, yeah. because Friends Reunited it had a sort of level of functionality that was in line with the tech of the era it came out in and then never managed to push it further and then that's just uh, does it even still exist no because i think everybody thought this is brilliant so i can finally keep in touch with all these these wankers i used to know back in school and then i got in touch with a few people like that and then facebook came along and just did the same thing but with just much better functionality yeah, the initial functionality on facebook was just light years ahead of the sort of end game functionality on Friends Reunited. And it was free. Friends Reunited, you had to pay in the end to start looking did at people. Because what happened, they did it all for free and everyone jumped on it. And then to actually send people email, that's right. They had this, <laughs> I remember now, they had this really crude where you couldn't access their email or contact them without paying. But people just used to write their email address in their description yeah, to get around it yeah. to get around it and then friends united thought right we need to then put some kind of algorithm in to scrub out email addresses so people then started writing you can find me at my name at the the warm mail place which is obviously hotmail yeah. that everyone used at the time so they got around that so their, their entire funding model collapsed because there were no ads on it this is in the days before no, adverts it was and in fact early on in face 
with Facebook uh, pre pre ads, there are all these little things where you could send some some special heart or something to people for 50, 50 cents and things like that, and that clearly must have worked well enough. It was just trivial amounts of of money farming, trivial amounts of money before they before they got the ads on it. But yeah, Friends, Friends Reunited were advertising on the TV, yeah, and all sorts. It was. But but also it was it never I don't know if it went global and then they they, they tried branching out into something else I was it Pets Reunited I, was like, I can't remember what it was they tried branching out into something else, um, but the thing the thing that amuses me about Facebook, which again this should be mentioned more often and I only found out because of the the film The Social Network, that started off with the it was when uh, Zuckerberg was at Harvard was he I think it was Harvard he was at. And he set, he set up this website called Hot or Not, where he basically went through this entire student mugshot directory and invited people to comment whether they were good looking or not. Ooh, this, that wouldn't fly now. Ooh. This isn't very woke, is it? This isn't very. And he 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 started he did that, and that grew to Hot or Not grew. Then I think he got a bollocking for some reason, but not because of the nature of it. Something happened. He closed it, used all the tech he developed on that to come up with this way of linking all the people in Harvard so they could talk to each other. That then expanded to other uh, Ivy League universities. So for a few years before Facebook, it was this like group of sort of 12, 15,000 people just who are uh, Ivy League uh, undergrads who could all talk to each other and link as we do on Facebook. And then someone said, well, Zuckerberg said, well, why not just take this worldwide? That's how it started. It started off hot or not. He was this geek who was basically passing judgment on all the women that are in, uh, and, and the <laughs> men and women who are in, because um, I remember hot or not. I remember it. People oh, could put their mugshot up, shut up, put their mugshot up, and then people would rate you out of 10. And um, I, I was clever enough known for my mugshot up, because I knew what the results had been, but it's... Uh, <laughs> No, that was that was, uh, I, and and that was going for quite a while. That was when I was in Russia. But um, but I mean, the, all it takes is the next something better than Facebook to come along. And if Facebook don't buy them up immediately, I'm to be honest. I think Facebook usage among younger people is really dropping off. I've got a um, oh, it's full of it's full of early middle aged exactly. almost middle aged people like us. Exactly. It's... And I don't use it anymore. I mean I, I, I won't comment anything like that. my kid's sister is probably twenty one now and I'm friends with her on it. I never see her posting anything. I think they're far more on Instagram. Yeah that's become <clears throat> Instagram's big. Um, Twitter I don't see any of my Twitter's just an outrage whirlwind, self-reinforcing outrage whirlwind. And it's also jam-packed full of prof professional uh, media types. So it's really just an extension of the mainstream media in many ways. And, and to, to go back to the in, initial point of uh, uh, professional persona, private persona, a lot of these media types with the blue tick marks and all that post their personal opinions and then when called on it, well, aren't you meant to be an impartial journalist, then hide behind the, oh, but it's just my personal uh, Well, that's what I, my personal I picked opinion. up Michelle Birdie last week and, and my very valued commentator, um, Alexei in Russia, he defended her and he thought I was wrong on this. In fact, I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, but I do like his uh, when he comes on and comments because he's a bright guy and he gives some really good um, 
insights on stuff. But I think he I think he was wrong in this because he was basically saying that Michelle Birdie, she's an editor of an English speaking newspaper in Russia called The Exile. Not The Exile, sorry, so she's not editor of the Exile. She's exile she's editor of the Moscow Times. But anyway, she's the editor of a newspaper. She is known mainly because of her Russian commentary in her professional role. If she wasn't in that professional role, nobody would know her. If she was the director of a hotel in Moscow, nobody would know her. So her profile is known because she's very well known as a translator and editor and sort of media person in Moscow and been there for years, knows the place well, fluent in Russian. She uses her Twitter account to actively promote her the, the Moscow Times. You should read this now. You should read that. This event we're here. You should, this is a good article that we're publishing. Using the same account, she then peddles fake news about Trump and doesn't seem to understand that that is seriously undermining her own publication. And she said her defence was, oh, this is just, I'm not publishing, I'm just tweeting. But, OK, however you dress it up, legally or anything, there is such a thing as brand protect protection. Absolutely. And if you have a brand, I mean, I have it on my own website. That Desert Sun is a brand of sorts. If I go on there and under my Desert Sun banner, talk shite, peddle fake news, come out with shit, that brand will be diluted to a point. Unless is, you decided that you'd had a knock on the head and that was the way you wanted to go, you could morph your brand in that direction. Yeah. But if you'd done that, you couldn't then come back and say, no, I'm this very serious libertarian commentator. No, it's, uh, you, you couldn't. I, I have to, I mean, my brand, whatever it, it is, whatever it is, but I can't, whatever I say on that blog and on this podcast, I have to, I have to acknowledge that this is, <clears throat> if I say something that is inconsistent, if I say something that is, will turn people off if I say something that is uh, uh, it just doesn't really stack up to the standards that my listeners and readers expect that will undermine my brand absolutely um, I can't come on here and start going on about Scientology and trying to flog um, diet supplements and things and expect that it has no impact on the rest of it there is People go onto my website and they expect a certain a certain quality. Now this sounds very pretentious. It's only a blog, but if I was running a newspaper, I could not under that umbrella. What you could do is have a Twitter account, which is totally separate, and you can then use that to talk about cooking. You could talk about what you did that day. You could and you could make it so that it was obvious that it was nothing to do with your absolutely uh, uh, and that's what this lady should have should have should have done you can she get should. away with that you can get away with that you can you can you could do that you could say because people would say these are my professional standards i wouldn't say that over here but i can say it here but what these people want to do they want it both they, ways they want to have all the readership and the clout that comes with their professional persona and use that to peddle all the other crap well, it doesn't work like that without diluting the brand and, and companies know this. In fact, companies know it to such an extent that sometimes, and you see this with a lot, um, you will see, and we studied this in marketing, a company will have a very good brand and they realize that there's a niche or a, an, a, an opportunity in a lower end of the market 
and they want to exploit, but they don't want to append their current brand to that market segment because it will dilute it. Hence Tesco value as Tesco a sub value. brand. You have Fender and you have uh, Epiphone. Yeah. They have, a, and, and what Bosch Squire. did. Squire. Esquire, Esquire. What did I say? Epiphone. Epiphone is Gibson's uh, yes, that, cheaper that's, brand. That's yeah. right, exactly. But they have, they have a cheaper brand. And what, um, and you see hotels do it. So you have the Accor Group has the Sofitel, they have the Pullman, they have, and, and right at the bottom they have the Ibis. So that they're, they're using different brands in different segments. So you don't dilute one brand. Bosch made a mistake. If you go into a hardware store, you'll see blue Bosches, a drill. I'm talking about the drills and like the sanders and circular saws. There's blue ones and there's green ones. Now the blue ones are what the professionals use. So you see the, the guy in his overalls on a building site use that. They decided they were going to go into the home DIY cheaper range and do Bosch, but they'd be green. Now these green tools. See, which I identify see, the green ones with Bosch, not the blue ones. Yes. I'm unaware that they were blue Bosches. The green ones are crap. Mm. They fall to bits and, I, and you know, I've tried to drill through reinforced concrete and things just fell apart in my hands. They're not good and that has damaged the blue Bosch in the eyes of the professionals, because now people are just saying, well, Bosch, you know, he's got the same name and the cut, and they check, what they should have done is given it a totally different name. Mm. Like, the, and, and there's- Or Bosch DIY, or just a sub-brand. Yeah, it's there, but I think they thought the color was enough, and it wasn't. Yeah, but in the eyes of the consumer, Bosch is green. Exactly, because they're the, one, they're the ones you see, and, uh, and it's done their professional line damage. Now, a lot of companies do this. I think there's, there's, there's dozens and dozens of examples where a company, um, you see it with perfume brands, with uh, um, watch brands, they'll, they'll own a separate company and make sure there's no dilution of their high-end brand. Rolex but, and Tudor, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And, there's, I mean, there's this, and this is very common. Journalists don't do that. They, they don't understand brand protection. That if you have a brand like the Times or the BBC or something like this, you cannot then be under that umbrella peddling crap because the entire brand will suffer. This has been known by marketing people for decades, but I think journalists, being journalists and a bit dumb, they haven't worked this out yet and they haven't worked out that this you and, and and Alexis' point was, uh, oh well, you know, it's obvious that she's not talking a personal. It doesn't matter. The brand is being diluted, and it's not obvious. That's it's not thing. obvious. No, the, 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 it's, it's obvious. It to sounds him. like yeah. It sounds like he wants it to be obvious because he he wants it to be true. No, it's but from the no, outside. No, it wasn't that. It's obvious to him because he's a smart guy and knows this situation okay. inside out. So he looks at it and goes. Oh well, it's obvious that this isn't, um, you know. It's it, whereas I'm talking far more of an outsider, and my readers are complete outsiders. They couldn't care less who this person is and what the the nuances are. They just say, "Hang on a minute." She's in her profile. It says she works for the Moscow Times, and she's peddling fake news about Trump. Well, they there's the link right there, and it's it's ironic because the same people think that. Well, they're probably not the same people, but. They perhaps mix in certain areas of the same Venn diagram. But the outrage mob like to go, well, hang on a minute. This person is a lowly employee uh, giant corporation who's come out with these unapproved views. 
they're damaging the brand, we should get them fired. And the HR will go, you're damaging our brand. But it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to pass, the, it doesn't seem to occur to journalists that they're trashing their brand, but by blabbing their personal opinions over, un, under the umbrella of their employer, it doesn't seem to occur to them. And it's funny because they're kind of, the, they mix in the same circles, these people. And they're often involved in these Twitter mobs. Exactly. As well. And it's, it's sad that, uh, that a random Twitter mob of over-leisured, under-occupied people can, can get ordinary people fired for next to nothing. And this is another thing that I brought up in my, in my HR discussion is one of the things companies are going to have to get a lot smarter at, especially the small. I mean, Google can fire who they want because they'll get another hundred replacements. Um, so they fire James Damore. That will do them reputational damage, but they'll still be able to function. He, they won't suddenly collapse because he's not programming. It's probably That's... taking a certain proportion of their potential recruiting pool out of the equation, but their, their recruiting pool is so great. It doesn't matter. It's plenty, it doesn't there, matter. There, there's plenty of true believers. But a small, smaller company might end up losing somebody valuable. And what companies are going to have to be a lot smarter, especially if they start going after their CEO, they might have a very competent CEO who's doing good things for the company who gets on the end of a Twitter mob and the company is trying to then thinking, right, we get rid of the CEO and that could really damage them. And a similar example is what they did with LucasAid, where the Twitter mob and the anti-sugar mob rise, rose up and said, all right, you know, we want you to change the recipe for LucasAid and get rid of the sugar. They did that and a billion customers said, this is disgusting, we're not buying it anymore. And mm. what companies have to get a lot better at doing. And I think there's a niche here for people advising companies. Maybe some academics can do a proper paper on it. I believe there's one, but I couldn't get hold of it because um, it was behind a paywall newspaper article. But these Twitter mobs consist of like 100 people. Yeah. It's tiny. They're not customers. They're not... And what happens is in our marketing and our HR lectures, we hear, oh, but... These things go viral and before you get this customer feedback and companies have to react to it. No, they don't, because what they think is this massive revolt by 10 million customers is basically 100, 200 lunatic SJWs who aren't customers anyway. They're just causing trouble. Yep. And if companies don't learn to differentiate between the two, are they going to be making some massive strategic mistakes? There is a massive silent majority who is just fed up to the ITs about, about all of this nonsense. And it's very easy for them to stop patronising a company. Um, in the States, Dick's Sporting Goods was a, big, right, was a, was yeah. a big one. that uh, They stopped selling guns. Particular yeah. types of guns. And everyone just went, OK, I'm, I'll, I go won't, I'll go somewhere else. I mean, outdoor shops in the States, there's so many, uh, so many options. It's just a massive PR fail to appease a very small number of shouty, annoying people. And... Somebody came up with a figure somewhere of the number of adults in Britain that are on Twitter. Have a guess what percentage it is. Oh, it's like one or something. No, it's more than that. 17. Mm. So you've got the first thing that any company faced with a Twitter mob should be thinking is at the very, very most, this is 17% of the country. Who are probably not customers anyway. What proportion of them are customers? What portion of their customers? What are the exactly? So, but they're they're, they're panicking, and and we're being taught now that this is the stuff that companies should be reacting to, and they should be aware of this, and these things can go viral. I'm more of the would like to see more of that. Let's put in place proper mechanisms 
for assessing the damage before jumping to a conclusion. Mm. What is the damage to our brand? What is the damage to our sales? And what is the views of our actual customers? I expect you'll find in 99% of these Twitter mobs, the damage is zero. And that you do more damage by overreacting to the Twitter mob. Absolutely. Well, particularly in the case of LucasAid, who, which wasn't a Twitter mob, it was the health fascists at Health Food England or something, consisting of 20 failed doctors who just got a bee in their bonnet and government funding, persuaded a company to change their product. And, uh, but, it, and it's, it's, I think companies will get away with firing you know, the odd employees, they don't care. But when they start going after the CEOs, the CFOs, or the technical staff, or they start changing their product. So on a tangent on this way, we, we seem to have a certain group of activists who have got to be in their bonnet about fat or sugar or palm oil or whatever. And they're putting pressure on politic, on politicians to get their own way. And then when they're not getting their own way, they're taking it outside of politics to a form of online mob rule to try and get their own way. And, and, they're, and they're, unfortunately, they're succeeding with things like, like LucasAid. And it's, it's, it's kind of scary that, I mean, we are discussing this upstairs earlier, of a, a lot of these political structures for things like, for, for, for dealing with public policy issues, they've actually not been in place that long on a, no. on a, on a human on a human timescale. No, we no, seem no. to have rapidly forgotten the point of these institutions, imperfect though they are, that the point of them is that change can be affected without resorting to violence, without resorting to mob rule. But part of that is accepting that when you, when you lose, you lose. You step aside. We see this with, uh, uh, with what's happened with Brexit. We see it with... Uh, Trump, yeah. With Trump. We see it with uh, all these, these health crusades um and things like and things like that there's people just won't accept defeat and yet if they were on the winning side and the other side wouldn't accept defeat they'd all be oh this is all anti-democratic you have to oh accept yeah all yeah, the yeah. So, well this is the thing this is what we were saying before that the before the podcast that the the game is rigged there's no point playing a game which is rigged because you'll it's set up for you to lose it's it's most of what we see now is uh heads i win tails you lose yeah and so you have to really break away from that. The problem is what I see from the sort of the corporate HR perspective is that companies feel they have to play the game. One of the things I admire ExxonMobil for, I don't think they do this. I'm not sure if they do this now. It certainly was their position previously. Even they might have succumbed. All the oil majors are fully on board with the global warming thing. Because they have to be. Because otherwise they just kind of, they feel they have to be. Otherwise it's bad PR and they want to, you know, they don't want to be, even though, even though they still are lumped in with tobacco companies and arms manufacturers, they, they, they want to be this, you know, nice fluffy companies that um, get good PR. ExxonMobil for a long time was shamelessly, basically, we're not a renewable energy company, we're an oil and gas and derivatives company. There's still a huge market demand for this. Our intention is to meet it and make money doing so. We're not going to go into renewable energy because we don't want to lose money. And just unashamedly do what you do. And that's, I think, the direction that companies need to take because that's the only way they're going to win. What they're trying to do is what uh, my ex-employer does. 
they try to pander to the Paris Agreement and the green energy things. And when Total posts something on Twitter, there's a million people jump on calling them that they're murdering people and killing seals and polluting the oceans. So it doesn't help. I mean, they, they think oil companies should shut down tomorrow. So there's no reasoning with these people. But they're playing their game. And what, they, what the, the, the smaller companies, the ones who aren't really at the, in the limelight, need to do is just... Uh, they, they can't play the game. You have to be stick to your guns and just say, we are not playing this game. And we're not firing people because of Twitter mobs. We're not jumping on board with UN sustainable development goals because they're absolute nonsense. It's just PR. It's pure and utter PR. It's, mm. it's, uh, um, it, it's just a, a way of deflecting criticism and for big companies to cozy up to governments but it's a rigged game. You're 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 never gonna you're never gonna win the game where the person your opponent is setting the rules. You're never gonna win it. So the important thing is you don't play. And plus, it's a Kafka trap. The rules the rules can change without notice. I mean, oh, yeah. you you just see people hounded, people in public life hounded with, after some uh, uh, outrage. Archaeology uh, turns up something they said that was the height of political correctness before it was called wokeness. Yeah. Um, 15, 20 years ago, which is now beyond the pale. That's right, yeah, and they're being hounded out of, um, I mean, there was some, I don't know, some singer, uh, I was reading about this this morning, some singer yesterday sung God Bless America. I don't know, I think, she, I don't know who it was, but she was around years ago, and apparently she may have uttered some racist comment once in 1947, so we shouldn't play God Bless America anymore. I mean, it's just absolute bollocks. But I think what you see in companies is people more and more because of the individuals they're recruiting and the incentives in place <clears throat> it's becoming again more and more sort of you have to be playing this rigged game within the company instead of focusing on where our added value is and it's inter it would be interesting to ask people in google where their added value is they'll go oh it's our people no where's your added value where do you make your money Stripped down to it, like I said, it's a, it's a search engine with a, oh no, it's an advertising company. Mm. Amazon is a logistics company. That's what they do. They're, they're, they're good at warehousing and shifting shit around. That's what they're good at. It's, and it's not particularly innovative. I mean, it's, it's, they put a few things together. Are they making money these days? Even? Because they weren't for a long time. No, but I think that's deliberate. They just plough it back in. Yeah. I mean, all they're doing is plowing back in, so they don't pay corporation tax. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, it's a profitable business for sure. But they're, I mean, basically Amazon have just done very, very, very smart logistics. But it's not this, I think laymen who don't really understand it, they look at these things and think they're doing these amazing things behind closed doors. But yeah, Google's, a, Google's an advertising company with, um, which derives its competitive advantage from the fact it has a very good search algorithm which is what brings people in which, which brings, brings the eyes in. to the to the advertising yeah you then have facebook which was really their competitive advantage was that they were the first proper global fully interconnected social media network they were the standard i mean others tried it i think myspace came on and blah 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 and, and yeah friends reunited but facebook were the ones who first really cracked it and got the mm. entire world on whether their advertising revenue brings much in i don't know um uh, i don't know i, I don't know where the houses i mean wh where do they go from here what do i don't understand how facebook's even that big i mean because what else do they do I mean, Google at least has a range of products and they might go somewhere in the future. What's Facebook going to do? 
rig elections. I don't know. It's, uh... Well, they now now they host videos and, and and so on. They're trying to do a little bit of of everything. So there's a little bit of Instagram in there. There's a little bit of YouTube. Are they, in there. Do there's they own Instagram? Do they? No, but there's a little bit of what you can do on Instagram. You can also do on Facebook. Who, who owns Instagram? I have no idea. I thought that was owned by one of them. Um, but there's a certain tendency to hoover up the startups that seem to be getting popular to avoid to I, avoid I market don't, share. I don't going. really see how Facebook's even a company. I mean, other than they have a platform that's very popular. But it's basically, it's no different from if my guitar playing and singing was amazingly popular and I put that up on Desert Sun and I flogged advertising. Yeah. And I would have to have in place a pretty robust team of people selling the advertising space and all the different, you know, it's that. It's just basically they've got a reasonably popular platform which they sell advertising space on. How this is held up as an innovative company and that this is something which is even worth discussing, I don't know. It's worth discussing from a sociological point of view and their impact on elections and this kind of thing. I mean, I think it's worth talking about, but in terms of business, what, 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 where are they going to be in 20 years? What, what, mm. What's their business model? What, what, what's I, I their don't think they're evolution? thinking of a, of a horizon that long. That's no. a very, in, in tech, if you think back 20 years, where, where were we? That was uh, 1999. Well, GeoCities. GeoCities was huge in 1999. Yeah. And where's that? I believe it's still hanging around as a zombie, uh, as a zombie thing, pushing up the daisies, but... Um, no, and that I think, was big. Uh, what were the what were the big search engines? Alta Vista, Alta Vista Yahoo. which produced a lot of noise. Yeah. But would, Alta Vista was good because it it drilled down deep, but it produced a lot of noise. No, what it used to, what they used to have then they had these things called web portals. They thought, what you do, you oh, yeah. log on to this system. AOL, AOL keywords. That's right, and they oh, they geez. then you then go through, and this is what this is what the, the mobile phone companies screwed up on. They thought. They were going to be providing the content and everybody would go through this portal and then they'd be providing, like, the, like Vodafone would be providing all this amazing content. In fact, all it was a pipeline. No one's interested in that. You, basically, you provide the data, the data stream, and let everyone else provide the content. Mm. And I think that's really was a kick in the teeth for the, uh, the, the, um, the, te the telecom companies and a lot of these, these uh, ISPs. Yeah, the mm. ISPs thought they were going to be the web portals, which would then provide all this amazing content. And in fact, people just treat them like, basically like a water pipe. Yeah. Listen, mate, we don't care. Put the pipe in my house, now bugger off. Mm. You know, I'm not interested in what mm. you think I need. But, but how many of, the, how many of the, the, the household names from 20 years ago on Yahoo's Tech the only one. Yahoo's really. the only one, and that's, yeah. you're struggling. That's kind of a legacy. Yeah, it, the the fact it's still functioning and hasn't well, been sold. Well, they bought Flickr and then sold them again. I mean, I can't imagine that transaction made them any money. No. Uh, Flickr sent me an email the other day saying, "Right, you need to pay us if you want to keep storing. The, you need to upgrade to Flickr Pro if you want to upgrade to uh, if you want to keep all. You, basically, there's a limit of like six hundred or thousand photos. You're going to have to delete one hundred and sixty five unless you upgrade to Flickr Pro." Flickr Pro? That sounds like a Ask Jeeves Pro. I mean, who the hell would pay for that? Yep. I mean, firstly, most people on Flickr are not pro photographers, so they're not going to be upgrading. There is also, I'm sure, there's pro sites where you could do this. And this is, Flickr is something that was popular like 15, 16 years ago. I, I, I started an account just as a way to sort of stick my photos online, you know, just for the hell of it. 
But I don't think anyone uses it anymore. Mm. Yet they've now decided, to, uh, right, right, let's start trying to monetize this dying platform. Yeah. Yeah. No, so it'll, be, it'll be like, it'll be like um, MySpace Pro, right? Unless, mm. you, unless you want to maintain your MySpace, you need to pay us this money. Well, no, no thanks. Yeah. Hot pot. Hot pot. And I Hot think what I, was another. One, one of the, I had this conversation on, um, where did I do it? It was in David Thompson's blog. I think bloggers might end up with the last laugh because one thing that I think is really interesting, there was a case last week of an Instagrammer who was just some absolute tramp with a massive pair of tits of like, she's like 20, so she's vaguely attractive purely because of her age and her giant tits. She was um, an Instagram influencer. So she basically just put semi-naked pictures of herself up and just came out with this rubbish. And you had this like... 30,000 thirsty incels following her. And suddenly, for sort of no apparent reason, her Instagram account got yanked and just got closed. And she went mental, going all of a sudden, she's built up this whole brand and persona, which is suddenly just in a flash of an eye, she's just someone sat in her bedroom. She's got nothing. And this occurred to me, the way Twitter's going, what's gonna make me laugh, and there'll be a lot of schadenfreude about this. A lot of people on Twitter have built up really big followings and that's really they can use that for uh, for personal gain and and probably money and exposure and this kind of thing especially all these journalists and people that could end in the blink of an eye all it takes is an account to be yanked well it all it takes is the is is the platform to go because at some point this at the moment it's eating its own tail they can't decide whether they're a publisher whereby you've got algorithms taking out wrong thing and closing down and, and this kind of thing. Or they're basically a, a carrier and say, look, there's no editorial content, so there's nothing to do with us. And I'm not sure that Twitter will exist in a few years with these contradictions mounting up. At some point, they might be hit with such a massive lawsuit. Yeah. They might just have to yank it temporarily. They might have to restrict it so much it loses its function. They might make people start registering with proper detail. They, one of the things that might happen, they might ban anonymous accounts. That mm. might come, which would then mean all it is is a load of basically the people you know anyway just talking to one another. Um, mm. A lot of the big anonymous accounts will go, <clears throat> so they'll lose their branding because there's a lot of anonymous accounts. Like with, like um, Neon Taste is quite big. He's got like He's got like half a million followers. No one knows who he is. But that's seriously risky. You've spent 10 years building up this massive brand and online following that's not associated with you. Somebody mm. could pinch that. Somebody could, or Twitter might decide there might be a law passed because of online harassment, something. Sorry, all online can now have to have, um, you have to say who you are. And Steve Saylor said that the reason he isn't anonymous is because when in the 90s he started writing, he said he, he, he couldn't work out if he was anonymous how to monetize what he does. And I think there might be a time in the future when all these people who've put years into the, and their entire life is on Twitter or on a social media platform, little change in the law and the whole lot's yanked and they're all back to square one. Can't do that with a blogger. Yeah. Can't do it with a blogger because the bloggers, like someone like Tim Worstall, hosts, he's his own platform. Unless for some reason he gets thrown off his host which is a totally different process, you can still get, your brand is still there. So, well, they have been going after hosters for umpc people. 
They have, but that's not the same as basically a quick change in the law or a change in policy. Yeah. And suddenly everybody's wiped out. <clears throat> I mean, all it would take is suddenly Twitter comes under pressure after an incident where they say that you need to clamp down on anonymous accounts. They can't even, at the moment, they can't even clamp down on jihadi accounts. No. Well, I don't think they want to. Um, it's, it, 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 it's weird that so, you get some meek and mild, relatively meek and mild conservative voices that get that get censored. Meanwhile, there's jihadi accounts. Yeah, exactly. You've got a Hamas account. So you have these, all the time you hear now is <coughs> big tech needs to do more, needs to be more responsible. <coughs> Sorry, my voice is going here. You need to do more and more, blah, blah. Every week it's big tech needs to face these challenges, particularly Twitter. They're changing and updating the terms of service all the time, what's allowed, what's allowed. If my entire persona and my brand and a big chunk of my income was tied up in that I'd be worried yeah because you know in a year's time I'd be totally different they might have just totally changed the, the rules there might be a law passed saying that you know they need to you're now a publisher so you're now legally responsible for what gets said which means you now need to have people signing up under their names and they are now responsible for what they're saying and this kind of stuff a blogger doesn't have to worry about that mm blogger just carries on I mean my so my what I'm what I'm basically saying is I'm hoping that all these wankers on Twitter which is a shame because a lot of them are really good guys and I know you know some of them are really good including anonymous accounts but a lot of these wankers might end up suddenly have the rug from pulled from under they have to start again and where do they go they go back into blogging because that's where you can suddenly get your own you're in control again and I think it was very dangerous for a lot of people to go from where they had complete control on blogs to jumping over to uh, Twitter, where suddenly they're at the mercy of somebody else. Mm. So um, I think maybe blogs will end up with a resurgence, not like it was when everybody had a blog, but I think you might end up with something coming back. So I think I think people I think Twitter will end. Yeah, mm. it's 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 not put it this way, it's not heading in a good direction. It's just going to end up being a politically correct echo chamber ultimately yeah plus a mass yeah exactly it's it, that's where it'll end up because the they'll be forced to take more and more robust actions and interventions and ultimately they will be a reflection of the kind of people that twitter employs and which, the kind of people who have the leisure time to spend all day every day mining for offensive in inverted commas content to twitter mob them out of existence exactly so twitter's very responsive yeah. to that kind of um, in fact model. i think i think corporations would be it's corporations need to get off there because they're going to end up they're going to end up uh sucked into all this if, if i was in charge of a company and i had a brand to protect the last thing i'd do is go into the sewer you, you'd have to think, well, okay, maybe, look, maybe if you're a, a B2C and you're, you really need to sell, push a consumer product, why is Total on Twitter tweeting about LNG? I mean, do you honestly think that they're getting net positive PR? No. What's happened is somebody in marketing has said, this is where it's all happening now. You need to be on Twitter because everyone else is. Let's go in there. And every time they, I mean, I have fun sometimes. They make some claim, which I just, you know, because, you know, I, I just, their claim isn't wrong. It's just, you know, that I can just provide a bit of context to it. Like, mm. it's like, oh, our new project started up. This is going to be, hang on, that's not your project. You just got a stake in it. Someone else did the clever bit. 
you know. So when you say that, oh, you know, Yamal, um, not, uh, yeah, Yamal LNG has started up. Yeah, you don't own that. Novatech does. You're mm. not the operator. You provided a handful of people who weren't really particularly well received during the engineering and construction phase. And you provided a load of the funding. So it means you are a 10% stakeholder. Right, okay, big deal. Yeah, mm. that's not something to boast about. So what, why even go into it? Why have you got a brand? Why would you go on Twitter? It's possibly, yeah, as you say, that it was the, it was the next biggest thing. And okay, Twitter's got a, got a bit out of hand and you, they can't, they, they probably feel that they can't back out and they'll have a communications team. They'll have people whose job it is to, to yeah. dick about on Twitter. And so they're stuck. They've got a legacy Twitter account. They, fundamentally from the outside, they could cut off their account from one day to the next and probably very few people would notice. Nobody would notice. Nobody would notice at all. The only people who notice are the people who are paid by Total. In fact, might even probably isn't even owned by Total. It's probably all farmed out to a marketing company <laughs> who has some, some intern sat there uh, and to be fair, they're not too woke, their tweets, but some of them are, some of them. There's, there's um, a good account called, I think it's Woke, woke Capitalism, and they just go round all like they just round up all like the the woke crap that uh that big companies are putting out. But I don't I don't know why they do it. I think I think it's and I think they could run into problems because as Twitter becomes more embroiled in this kind of huge contradiction between whether they're a communication carrier or a publisher, and it starts becoming more and more polarized, the invective ramps up, the interventions are more heavy handed. You're going to end up with companies going, what are we doing in here? Why are we mm. here? You know, and you're just going to be, and you'll be able to get ju- juxta- juxta- juxtaposed um, tweets as well with sort of, you know, uh, and you're going to end up with a company stumbling in by mistake into the middle of some sewer. And, you know, it's, it's not a good idea. You should be staying well. And a proper marketing department would be going, Total does not need to be advertising his LNG capabilities on Twitter. No. You know, that's not where they need to be. I can understand when you fly into an airport, you've got the massive Total banners and the pictures of the LNG carriers. You think, okay, you've got businessmen turning, all right, this, this, yeah, I can understand this. This works. But on Twitter? Come on. Yeah. They'll be on Instagram. And maybe they are on Instagram. Maybe they are in between that girl with girl wearing not very much. You get, you get a promoted tweet from Total talking about their LNG capabilities. Yeah, it's, it seems to be marketing not to the end consumer and... No, well, they got money. They got money to burn. So, so, and unfortunately, a lot of our marketing, our marketing professor was very good. She knew her stuff um, in terms of, uh, I mean, she'd worked for some quite big companies before, so really was able to teach us the basics of marketing. What I was a bit disappointed about is that it was all to do with giant companies. Mm. Like, this is how this, like, uh, massive company does its marketing and this is how it gets its feedback and it has to be on social media. I'm thinking, well, if you're a beta, and okay, she, she, that, that's what the focus seemed to be on. And whereas I, I, I'd like to have seen how a, a medium-sized company selling into a supply chain would have done its marketing more and what campaigns they would have sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, that that was what I like to see. So, so we say that unfortunately, and this is this is the thing with the um, with the the MBAs. I think they're more geared to people who are going to work in giant corporations and will be 
expected to do a lot of PowerPoint presentations that look very good. Now, my course has been very good. I've learned a hell of a lot from it because I think probably it's a bit of a smaller business school. But when I was talking to someone the other day, he said he was in a relationship with somebody who was from Harvard Business School for a long time, and she seemed to be very, very good at presentations. Mm. It doesn't gear you up particularly. I think I think the big business schools don't gear you up particularly to go and work in a like a you know a company of four or five hundred people and really take it somewhere. I don't think it. It's funny. My horizons is four to five hundred people is massive. Yeah, it is for me to be honest as well because it's um. I haven't quite got to grips with most companies I've worked over been pretty big in terms of employees. Um, goodness me, in Russia we had ten thousand people on the site. Yeah, in total was hundred thousand people. They needed about eight thousand of them, but still they had hundred thousand people on the book. But uh, so yeah, you, you, I think what they and and I asked this question. I said, you know, cause they talk a lot about entrepreneurship. I said, but. The skills you need to go and work for a giant corporation are not the same as you need as an entrepreneur. They're totally different. So what are we being taught? And it's kind of, I think, it depends on the professor in front of you. But I think if you went to one of the big business schools, I mean, I could maybe have, I don't know if I'd have got in, but if I'd have been prepared to cough at the money, would I have got into one of the big business schools like Chicago or or Harvard or NCAD or something? But I, 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 get, the, I get the impression I'd have just been taught boilerplate how to survive in a massive corporation and become a director there where you're giving PowerPoint presentations. And I didn't need that. Mm. That's not what I need. Mm. Yeah. So fortunately, I, cho- I chose a business school which is a, a lot less better known. Uh, but um, yeah, there's been some good stuff come out of that. Some interesting stuff. Mm. I'll see where it takes me. But yeah, I think I'll be ending up hopefully applying the stuff we've talked to today into medium-sized companies that may have swallowed the SJW Kool-Aid and gone, we need to do this because Google's doing it. And I'll be saying, steady on. Yeah. No, we ain't Google. We need to really kind of go old school and recruit people who can deliver because otherwise you ain't going to be making any money. Mm. And fundamentally, if you're not making any money... You go bust. You go bust. So how long have we been going for now? We've been going for... An hour and a half. Almost an hour and a half. Should we wrap this up and do something I think else? Probably should. I think it's about lunchtime, isn't it? I think so. Let's just see. It's almost lunchtime. It's indeed. almost lunchtime. Okay, we're going to stop this and go for lunch. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Go to my Patreon page. Give me loads of money. And uh, maybe I'll do another one of these. All okay. Right. Bye. Cheers. Bye.